You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So Ian, would you like to come forward and we'll just pray for you. Father, Lord, we thank you for the word, Lord, that you got for us through Ian. Lord, we just pray that um, you would open our hearts, Lord, and prepare us, Father, for this word, Lord, and, and just bless him, Lord, as he shares his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Mike. Good morning, everybody, and a special welcome to our nephew, Matt, who's over from Adelaide for the weekend, come over to visit us and uh, um, to go to the awakening event. We went on the Friday night and haven't gone back since. <laughs> It's just great to catch up. And is it Rebecca? Yes. yes. Welcome, Rebecca. Glad you could be with us this morning. And um, um, our visitors, Will, I suppose you can still constitute a visitor at the moment, do you? You've only been coming a few times. But glad to see you all here this morning. Um, as you'll know, we're voting this coming Saturday. So can I encourage you all to vote conscientiously? I won't tell you who to vote for, but uh, I will encourage you to take the time to have a look at the policies of the different parties. Um, I, uh, I like going to the voting booth. A lot of people don't like that, but I think that's something to celebrate personally, that we have the privilege of being able to vote and uh, democratically in this country. I like the whole experience of being bombarded with how to vote cards from parties that I wouldn't vote for in a million years and um, getting my name struck off the voting roll and standing in a little cardboard booth with a pencil. (laughs) Yes, my democratic sausage. Uh, I love that whole experience, and I love the fact that we can do that in this country. So I'd encourage you to take your voting privileges seriously and don't just uh, go in there and say, oh, I can't be bothered deciding who to vote for this year and just put a, a one and a two or whatever according to the, the card, have a look at the policies of the different parties because some of them are diametrically opposed to Christian values. Um, some of the parties that you would think are very supportive of Christian values are not necessarily so supportive. Um, others that you don't know very much about are very um, strong on their Christian values. Um, and I'm one of the few people I know that actually loves the whole process of numbering the Senate from one to whatever it is. I think there's only a couple of dozen, maybe 47. Is there that many this year? Oh, wow. didn't realise that. I know there was uh, close to 60 in the last federal one, I think it was, and I numbered every single one of them. I spent quite a bit of time working out which ones I wanted first, last and everywhere in between. So it was a big job, but I love it because it says something about this nation that we're able to do that and we're able to do that freely and we're able to have differences opinions of opinions with other people about our politics without being herded up and marched off to concentration camps or without having uh, the vote count doctored to suit the incumbent party or whatever. So, um, In fact, why don't we just pray quickly about that, Father? Uh, We have a great privilege of voting coming up this Saturday in our state election and next year also in the federal election, Lord. Father, we pray that that you will um, remove all the dead wood 
from uh, from positions of power that are in at the moment, Lord, and you'll replace them with people of integrity, people of vision, people of heart for this state and for this nation. Uh, you'll replace them with people who are prepared to make decisions, even if they're decisions that are not necessarily popular, but decisions that are good for this nation and good for this state. And uh, Father, we pray that this will be a an election that uh, that occurs uh, without any violence and disruption, that it will be peaceful, as Australian elections normally are, Lord, that this will be peaceful even in these times of great disagreement and even violent disagreement between people. And uh, Father, we pray for the government that gets elected, pray that they will have a majority so they're able to govern effectively uh, instead of a hung parliament. And Lord, we pray that they'll be a government that uh, leads us well in the next four years of their term. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you've brought your Bibles with you or your electronic Bibles, as most people use today, we're going back. It's been a month, I think, since we were in John chapter 2. We're going back to John chapter 2 for the next part of our, um, our journey through this gospel and uh, going back to verses 12 through to 22. As we've been working our way through John's Gospel, we've often gone back to the very first pages of the Bible to help us understand what John or Jesus were talking about. There's been some concepts that are difficult to understand without laying the foundations. In some cases, go right back to the very, very first pages of the Bible and into the creation account itself. We've gone back to Genesis to help us understand what the word means, as in the word was made flesh and dwelt among men. The Lamb of God and the marriage supper of the Lamb are just a few examples as we've been working through John where we've had to go back to the, uh, the book of Genesis to lay our foundations for understanding that. Today we've got more of the same because we're going back to the earliest days of human history to understand the next topic the temple of God. A lot of religions have temples. Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons, Freemasons have temples, even Jedis have temples. And there's a, a Jedi religion nowadays, I believe. Um, and the temple is the major focal point of their religious worship and their, de- their devotion to their God. Muslims have mosques and um, Christians have cathedrals, which are in a sense an equivalent of a temple. They're holy, sacred spaces where in some cases you actually have to take off your shoes to enter it because it's considered so sacred. One thing I think that all of them seem to have in common though is that they don't believe that their God inhabits the temple. It's just a place for them to gather and show their devotion to their God, but their God doesn't inhabit it. The Jews used to have a temple one that God did inhabit, but it got destroyed nearly 2,000 years ago by the Romans. Have you ever wondered what happened to God when the temple was, that he inhabited was destroyed? Where did God go to live after that, when his house was torn down? We'll explore that this morning, but first, since it's been several weeks since we're in John's Gospel, let's go back and refresh our memories. John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. 
the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The purpose of the temple and the tabernacle in the wilderness before it was to provide a dwelling place for God amongst mankind. It's always been God's intention, his desire to dwell amongst those who are the pinnacle of his creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. This is not to suggest that in some way God is incomplete without us, It's not to suggest there is something lacking in him, a hole that needs to be filled, for example. God doesn't need us to meet some need in him. He is perfect. He is complete in himself. He has all of the fellowship he could ever need in the Trinity. He doesn't need us. But the truth is, God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to have a relationship with mere mortals, with sinful human beings. But that desire springs out of his, an overflow of his love for his creation and out of his grace towards us, not out of anything that's lacking in him. It's important that you understand that. God desires to have a relationship with man, but not because he has a need that has to be filled, but because he loves Until such a time as the Lord takes us to be with him eternally in heaven, his plan is and was and will be to dwell with us and in us on earth. So if we go back to the beginning of the book, back into Genesis, you'll recall God created the heavens and the earth, the plants and the animals with a mere word, let there be, let there be light, let there be land, let there be waters. God only needed to speak and all of creation came into being. And every day of creation, God looked and he said, that's good. He saw it was good. But on his last day of creation, he created the first human being, Adam. But this time he didn't create Adam by a word. God got down, so to speak, on his hands and his knees and fashioned Adam out of the dust of the earth. And he breathed life into him. There was an intimacy about this creation that was lacking in every other day of creation. It was a real hands-on creation, like a potter working with clay, shaping something into something else. And the Lord declared that this creation was very good. It was the pinnacle 
of his creation. As you read on, it would appear that the Lord had a practice of walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of evening and meeting with Adam and Eve, who he also created in an intimate act, hands-on act, and uh, walking with them, meeting with them, conversing with them, and uh, until sin, of course, came in and polluted it. We all know the story. It was an idyllic paradise. It was perfect. But there was a serpent there that cast doubt into Eve's mind. Did God really say this? Did God really say that? And Eve doubted. And Adam and Eve, as we all know, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin came into the world. The perfection of that paradise was destroyed in an instant. In Genesis 3.8 it tells us all about it. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And a man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. That first sin destroyed the relationship, the intimacy between God and mankind. And we've suffered alienation ever since from God. But God's intention and the story of the Bible is the restoration of that relationship. So if we move on a little bit further, there's plenty of examples of God appearing in human form in the book of Genesis. But then when we get to the second book of the Bible, into Exodus, we see the relationship become more formalised. The Lord would meet face to face with Moses as a man speaks with his friend, it tells us in Exodus 33. So Moses finally erected a tent as a meeting place, sorry, Moses firstly erected a tent as a meeting place with the Lord and says in verse 9, When Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, the Lord, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This tent of meeting apparently was before the tabernacle was erected in the wilderness. Shortly after, Moses built the tabernacle, but he built it to very detailed 
instructions that God had given him for the design and the furnishing of that tabernacle. The tabernacle was a big tent that was built as a meeting place of God and a place of sacrifice. The tabernacle was meant to be a tent of meeting where God would dwell with and meet with the representatives of his people. And the tabernacle was meant to be a longer lasting structure than what the tent of meeting that Moses had already erected was. So if you've read through the passages in the Bible that talk about the design and construction and furnishing of the tabernacle, you probably wondered why something that seems to be so irrelevant takes up so much space in the Bible. And it's incredibly detailed, the design and the furnishings. You'd think once the tabernacle was constructed that those those design details were irrelevant immediately. Why would we still need them thousands of years later, let alone immediately after it was built? Surely it wouldn't be necessary then. Why keep such a detailed record and why should we consider these passages Holy Scripture today? I know it's a bit difficult for us to understand with our Western mindset but they are relevant in all their details. The design of the tabernacle and the design of the temple after it and all the furniture and all the implements and all the rituals and the ceremonies that were part of it speak to us of God's unapproachable holiness and purity, of his perfection and of his glory. It's why it had to be done perfectly and to exact detail, because God is not missing anything. There's nothing about God that is half done. Everything is perfect, and he is perfectly holy. The Bible makes it very clear that God is so holy and pure that no one can be in his presence with even the slightest stain of sin on them. Indeed, no one can even look at him and survive, because he is so blazingly glorious that you'll be burnt to a crisp just at the sight of him if you were able to see him face on. That's a bit of a problem for us though, isn't it? Each one of us is sinful. Each one of us is rotten to the core, no matter how good we might think we are. You don't think you're rotten to the core? What about that driver that cut you off this week and you cursed at? Was that a righteous anger or an unrighteous anger? Or those couple of extra dollars you managed to get back on your tax return that you weren't actually entitled to. Just fiddled a few of your numbers, got a few extra dollars back on your tax return. Is that righteous behaviour or unrighteous behaviour? They're only little things. They're not like murder and rape and theft but they put a spotlight on just how far short of God's perfection we all fall, even as believers. As much as we might like to pat ourselves on the back about how good we are and how sophisticated we are, how advanced we are, how knowledgeable we are, we're really not that much different to Adam and Eve in the beginning. God demands, and as our creator, he is entitled to, perfect obedience for every moment of our lives 
But our relationship with God is already marred by sin, for we don't even get through a day without sin, let alone a lifetime. And yet this God who is so opposed to sin, who cannot look at it, who will not allow it in his presence, wants to have a relationship with his flawed and sinful creation. That doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be possible. We have no chance of undoing our past sins, even if we were able to live a perfect life from here on in. There's too much in our past that is a mess that we can't undo. And of course we're not able to live a perfect life from now on anyway. We all know that. Later on though, God puts in King David's heart the idea of building a temple, a permanent structure, not a tabernacle that moved around as they moved, but a permanent structure in one place in Jerusalem for God to dwell amongst his people. David wasn't allowed to build, as I'm sure most of you know, because he was a man of war, but God said, you can assemble the materials for it, but your son Solomon, who was a man of peace, will be the one that will build my temple. So David collected the finest timbers and marble and precious jewels and gold and silver for the construction of the temple. And when they built it and Solomon opened it and dedicated the temple, there was such joy that the celebration went on for seven days. It was a party for seven days. And the glory of the Lord descended and filled the temple, it tells us in the Bible. But the problem of sinful humans that are unable to enter the presence of God still remained, even with the temple. As you know, there's only one person, the high priest, that was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies in that temple. And that was only one day a year, the Day of Atonement he was allowed to go in. And he had to have very careful preparation. He had to confess his sins, he had to be washed and cleansed and purified before he was allowed to step in there because if he stepped into the Holy of Holies in a slightly imperfect state, he was destroyed. So if it's God's plan to dwell amongst humanity, how is that ever going to work? Because we can't do anything from our side to get it right. Of course, we need God to do something. We need him to correct the situation for us. And as we go a bit further through the Old Testament, that's what we see. Ezekiel 36 takes us into a little bit more about the temple. Therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And a little later, in Ezekiel 37, he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. God had a solution to our dilemma. He always had a solution to our dilemma. He always had a plan from before the foundation of the world, from before he even began creating the universe. He had a plan to solve our sin problem and to dwell amongst men. He would cleanse our hearts, something we couldn't do for ourselves. He would take out our hearts of stone. He would give us hearts of flesh. He would put his spirit, his Holy Spirit, who is God himself, within us. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our sight. Shortly after this, Ezekiel describes his vision of a future temple in which God will dwell forever. If we move on into the New Testament though, we see Jesus referring to his own body as the true temple, which we've just read earlier in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What Jesus said made no sense to them at the time. His disciples only put it together later on after his resurrection. And the Jews couldn't make any sense, but they could only think of a temple as that building that had taken 46 years to build at that stage, and I think was still not completed. But as we've seen many times as we work through John's Gospel, most, if not all, of the Old Testament physical realities, such as temples and gardens and priests and various other things, symbolise and point forward to something greater. They are just pictures of something greater. It's one of the reasons why so many people struggle with what they read in the Old Testament. They don't recognise the truth that this is only a picture of what is to come. Someone once said the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. The two tie together. One is the shadow, one is the reality and the revelation of what that shadow symbolised. So here Jesus begins to speak of his body as a temple. He's telling the priests that that magnificent temple in Jerusalem and all the previous temples before it and the tabernacle in the wilderness and Moses' tent of meeting as well, all pointed to something greater. In fact, all pointed to him. Just as the word became flesh and dwelt among men, so in Christ there is all of God in human body. Jesus Christ himself had become the dwelling place of God amongst men. 
Jesus Christ now is the true temple. He was the embodiment of everything the physical temples represented. But everything the Pharisees and the priests couldn't understand or wouldn't understand in some cases. Once we push on past the Gospels and get into the rest of the New Testament, we see this whole idea of a different sort of temple develop even further and develop in a couple of other ways. Paul addressing the church in Ephesus wrote, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, local church like us, and the universal church, all the believers around the world, is now one of the places where God chooses to put his presence, where he chooses to dwell. I don't mean buildings like this hall we're in or the church down the road. God was never able to be contained by buildings. Solomon understood that. When he built the temple and dedicated, he said, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. Rather, the temple now is the gathering of believers wherever they may be, whether it's here in this room this morning, next door in Bethel Bread of Life Church, across uh, our nation at uh, Marvel Stadium this afternoon at the Awakening events. Anywhere around the world where believers gather together is now a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Now we all understand God is present everywhere in the universe. He's omnipresent, the theological term says. It's not as if he's just confined to one place. He is everywhere. But we experience his presence in a special way when we gather together as believers and particularly when we're gathering together with a focus of worshipping and praising him, of, of getting into his word, of meeting together in fellowship. Sometimes you can feel that presence in a church meeting. I'm sure all of you have sometimes sensed something. It's almost something in the atmosphere that seems different. Sometimes there's a a weightiness there. It's almost like there's a load on your shoulders, but it's not usually a heavy load, even though it's a weight. It's something encouraging, joyous sometimes. Sometimes it makes you weep. Sometimes it brings conviction, but I'm sure at some stage you've all experienced that presence of God. God chooses from time to time to make his presence felt. He's always with us, everywhere in the universe God is, but there are certain times he chooses to make himself known in a way that we don't usually or normally experience him. But even if we don't sense his presence in that sort of way in our meetings, he's still present amongst us anyway. For where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there am I among them. We may not have any physical perception or any awareness of his presence, but it's there and it's here nonetheless. For we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. And since the church is now his dwelling place, how careful must we be to guard it from sin, from disunity, from exploitation, from corruption, from hypocrisy, from self-indulgence, from lifelessness. We're all charged with guarding 
this dwelling place of God from those things. The church is not the only place that God chooses to make his dwelling place nowadays though. For he also chooses to dwell in us individually, in our bodies. You recall Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? What an incredible thought. God has made his dwelling place not just with you, but in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That should be encouraging to each one of us, especially those who might struggle with the truth of their acceptance before God. And plenty of believers do. They struggle with how God could accept them. But if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are accepted by God and acceptable to God and his spirit dwells in you. So if you feel like you're not worthy for God to dwell in you by his spirit, I've got some bad news for you. You're not worthy. You never were worthy. Your sin separated you from God. You could never be good enough or holy enough for God to owe you salvation. But I've also got good news for you. Jesus Christ is worthy. If you put your trust in him, you are accepted. Not only are you accepted, you are justified, you are saved, you are made new, you are adopted, you are reconciled, you are secure, you are the apple of his eye. And God chooses to dwell in you, to make you his temple. There's also a frightening aspect, though, to this beautiful idea. Suddenly, then, that means there's an expectation, there's a demand, even, that we live in a way that honours God in the temple of our body, in a way that doesn't bring disrespect to God. But Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Not sure about you, but I find that a terrifying thought. Even though I know I'm secure in my salvation, there's an expectation, a demand that I live in a way that reflects the purity and the holiness and the perfection of God in a way that honours Christ, not in a way that imitates the world. For a bit later on in this same letter, Paul takes it up again. You can almost hear him scratching his head in verse in chapter 6, verse 15. Scratching his head is in wonder that we Christians can be so dumb. Do you not know, he says, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute has become one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he is, who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul insists, the word of God insists, that we are different to the world around us. We're no longer independent beings going off doing what we want to do and, uh, and um, satisfying our own desires and our own passions. For we belong to someone else now. We belong to the Lord. Sin is not to be our master anymore. Verse 17 of that passage tells us that we've become one spirit with him. Romans 6 tells us we've been united with him in a death like his so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I could go on. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God and as God said I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them just like back in the garden of Eden And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, he says, go out from among their midst, and be separate from from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The original temple was designed to be a place of absolute purity and holiness because it was intended to reveal the absolute purity and holiness of God. The new temple of the church and the new temple of our bodies is meant to be the same, holy and pure. Remember Jesus called the temple in Jerusalem my father's house. The temple, whether it was the original building or whether it was our bodies, belongs to God and is to be used for his purposes, not for ours. That's a confronting thought for you and I. Do we measure up? Can any of us say with confidence that our body, our thoughts, would be a place that God would be pleased to put his presence for God to dwell Of course not. I'm sure none of us would be as arrogant as to say that. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. For if you have put your trust in Christ Jesus, he has taken the penalty for your sin. He has endured the punishment that you deserved. He has suffered abandonment and separation from God on your behalf. And in exchange, he has imputed his righteousness to you. Not only are you declared not guilty on the basis of the blood that he shed on the cross of Calvary, he has declared you righteous in the sight of God. And he can make his dwelling place in you now, forever. 
if you and I really understood that, if we really grasped what it meant to be a temple of God and the work that God has done in us, I think it would change the way we live our lives. We'd live a life of overwhelming gratitude for the work that God has done in us. It would be sufficient motivation for us to obey him and at every point that we fail, to turn to him and lean into him for grace and forgiveness. For we have an advocate with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The work that God's doing to make us a suitable dwelling place for himself is not yet completed, as I'm sure you're aware. All of us recognise that. As much as we might desire to live lives that are holy and pleasing to the Lord, we fail on a daily basis. But a time is coming, a time is coming when he will complete the work. One day there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more shame, there'll be no more guilt, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more death. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth Revelation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation goes on to say, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God. And the Almighty, uh, the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamb, its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, we have something incredible to look forward to. We actually live in incredible times, for since the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are now a dwelling place for God. You individually are a temple of God. But there's a time coming when we won't have to carry around these bodies of sin, these things that cause us pain and seem to lead, lead us astray by their passions. It's a time coming when every barrier, everything that currently makes us feel distant and alienated from God will be removed. There will come a time when there is no need for a temple. 
No need for a temple of our bodies or a temple of the church. For God himself will be our temple. And we ourselves will dwell in that temple forever. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus Christ for that, now is the time to do it. I invite you now to turn to him. Ask his forgiveness. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to save you from the wrath of God in eternal death. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to the person sitting next to you. I'm sure they would love to introduce you to their saviour. And they would love to introduce you to that temple. Those who have experienced this, who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, you have a challenge before you to live a life, to work out this temple in a way that honours God. Too many Christians think that now I'm saved, I can do whatever I feel like doing now. I've got grace to cover me. Well, yes, you have if you're genuinely saved. But why would you? You're a temple of God. You're a temple of his spirit within you. Why would you ignore what God has done within you? Instead, we should be rejoicing that God has made his dwelling place with men after thousands of years of alienation from God. Thousands of years of separation. Thousands of years of man trying to work his way to God and into God's good graces by righteous behaviour and actions that always fail by sacrificing animals and God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So if you're a believer, I'd suggest that's a cause for great celebration, for eternal celebration. The day is coming when we'll meet him face to face and we won't have any more of the pain and the aches and the heartache and the broken relationships and the sin and the death but we will dwell in the presence of God forever and the Lamb will be our light and God himself will be our temple. So Father, we just thank you that you had a plan from before creation to solve the problem of our sin and our separation from you. You had a plan from before creation before the foundation of the earth, to dwell with men, to dwell amongst men, to dwell in men, in humanity, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that by the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that plan is being worked out. Lord, we pray that you will Continue to work out that plan this weekend in Melbourne, Lord, with the awakening event as it continues this weekend. Lord, would you change lives, change hearts. Lord, we pray that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people will be changed by the work of your spirit that will become temples of the living God this weekend. 
and we pray your ongoing work in our nation, Lord. We pray that you will save those who have hearts of stone, whose lives are lived for themselves and lived in opposition to you, Lord. Would you break into them, Lord? Would you break through their opposition? Would you take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh? So, Lord, that when we gather in that temple that Revelation tells us about in the New Jerusalem, Lord, we have untold thousands, millions, billions of new brothers and sisters there with us. Lord, pour out your spirit on this land. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.